to thank you for coming out to uh, listen to uh, Jonathan Jeffrey talk about the Spanish flu. I've heard Jonathan Jeffrey talk at a couple of conferences, and he's amazing. So, no pressure. <laughs> well, amazing. I like that. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm used to having a lot of uh, jokes and that kind of thing in my presentations, but this is just not going to lend itself very well to that. Although occasionally there are some humorous things that do come out, so I'll, so I'll preface all of that by that. Uh, I got an interesting call, and I'm, I'm going to mention his name. I don't think he's here, Dr. Howard. Well, I will say it was, he had some very interesting comments to make, and it really changed one little part of my presentation, so I, I really do appreciate him calling. So you never know, and I've already talked to two people who had some association with, not themselves, with the 1918 flu, but they had family members. Well, it should be no surprise when you have an, a pandemic that worldwide kills 21 million people that there are not dozens of stories related to it, even down to this generation. So it doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all. Well, during the final months of World War I, disease, rather than the German war machine, uh, were, was the greatest threat to America. Influenza hit the United States for the second time in, in a year in the late summer of 1918 and rapidly spread across the nation. The disease ravaged Kentucky for several months, and this was in the late fall of 1918. It restricted social, cultural, economic, and political life, killed nearly 14,000 of the Commonwealth's residents, and weakened many others. Kentucky's visit from the Spanish lady, as, as the flu was sometimes called, was one of the most terrifying ordeals of the 20th century. And I'm, I almost said the early 20th century, but really the entire 20th century. Before the pandemic ended, by the way, does anybody know the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? Yeah, pandemic, like Pan, Pan World Airlines, means worldwide. It was a worldwide epidemic. Over 675,000 Americans died from influenza, and worldwide, the generally agreed upon figure is 21 million people. It's absolutely amazing. The origin, I, this is what Dr. Howard helped pull out, and I think you'll find fascinating, especially Kansas. The origin of the 1918 flu epidemic is unknown, although most pathological evidence, now, what does that mean? Did they go out and dig up people? They did on occasion to try to find the answer to this, where did the flu begin? But they also, during the flu epidemic, had saved samples from people's lungs uh, that they had done autopsies on. And believe it or not, they were frozen. And they actually dug up a couple of bodies in remote parts of Alaska that were like on permafreeze anyway, and, and took portions uh, for, for testing. But the pathological evidence seems to indicate that the flu first started in Haskell, Kansas, and it had to do with a farmer who was working with animals. Now, this is the great, not the great, the interesting thing about the flu is uh, it has to live within a host in order for it to uh, mutate, multiply. So they are sometimes transmuted from persons to animals. So the ones we always hear about are what two animals all the time. Birds, the avian flu, and then the big pigs, the swine flu, yes. Well, from, from Haskell, Kansas, it got transferred by this gentleman 
to Camp Funston, which is part of the larger uh, Fort Riley complex. And the Camp Funston containment at its peak held 56,000 men. Now this is right during World War I, so you know it's at peak. And that was the second largest containment in the United States at the time. This occurred in January of 1918. It's believed that the infected men then left Fort Riley and carried the disease to Europe. And the flu ravaged Europe and eventually spread worldwide from that point. It received its unofficial moniker as the Spanish flu or the Spanish lady when Spain began accurately reporting the numbers of infected citizens and the number of deaths. Now, I use the word accurately on purpose because it stands to reason that the other European countries surrounding Spain would also be experiencing these same catastrophic numbers. Even the United States, where the flu was pretty rampant in the early part of 1918. But evidence suggests that because these countries were at war and thus under censorship, they did not report accurate numbers for the number of people dying from the flu. Spain was neutral and thus would be reporting accurate numbers. Diseases know no geographical boundaries and they travel as quickly as any army or ship. There are several other, I, I practice this word all day long, epidem epidemiological, the study of epidemics and diseases, there are several of those theories about the origin and spread of the flu in 1918, including one about the uh, numbers of Chinese men that were brought in to help do infrastructure war during World War I into Europe, and they thought that it spread from that. Uh, but most scientists seem to lend credence to the Kansas origins of the flu. Some Americans believe that the disease was brought to the United States by infected German agents who were dropped off here off of German submarines. Uh, which today we would inevitably call it an urban legend, but uh, in that day they would call it strictly propaganda. Viral diseases ebb and flow, just like the tides. While on its European terror, the disease eventually mutated into a more virulent strain, and, and, and viruses can do this. They can get into a host and they, they change uh, their, I hate to, compare them to a person, but you know, it'd be like a split personality. It can change just almost immediately. Uh, and so when the soldiers returned from World War I, they brought the disease back with them for the second time. And this is what, this is the, the epidemic that affected Kentucky the most. Not the first round, which started in January of that year, but the second round, which was in the late fall of 1918. This A strain virus, which is the worst, you know, there are three strains, A, B, and C. A is the worst. It was the one that quickly ravaged Kentucky in the fall of 1918. Its spread was aided by the mass movement of troops and by crowded conditions on military installations. The severity of the illness can be blamed on the virulent strain, so that's one thing. Secondly, the wartime shortage of medical personnel, and then the absence of modern medicine, or particularly drugs. The first diagnosed cases of Spanish flu in Kentucky appeared at Camp Taylor, which is right outside of Louisville. On January 25th, okay, see, we're already in the fall, and this is the first re recorded case uh, at, at Camp um, Zachary Taylor confirmed the rumors that the training camp had been stricken. Recognizing the danger of a severe epidemic, 
medical officers distributed uh, little printed pamphlets. We happen to have one at the Kentucky building that discussed the cause and prevention of the disease. And the base commanded ordered that the military police prohibit men from congregating anywhere. So they, you know, they would be in their barracks, but they were not to come together for parties or anything like that. They also just issued directives requiring that all windows be kept open for extra ventilation and that classes and drills be minimized to prevent exposure and fatigue and that all entertainment and dances for servicemen were canceled. To protect the, to protect the nearby civilians, the number of passes normally given to the soldiers was decreased greatly and provost guards were stationed on Louisville streets to enforce an order prohibiting these servicemen from gathering in theaters, uh, dance halls, and hotel lobbies. Despite these precautions, Camp Taylor's base hospital soon became so crowded that 15 barracks were turned into temporary hospital wards. All medical facilities were placed under strict quarantine and guards posted at the doors prevented the entry of visitors and unauthorized personnel. Due to the sudden increase in patients, the field director of the American Red Cross issued emergency appeals for at least a thousand sheets and pillowcases. Just imagine trying to pull together a thousand sheets and pillowcases, and really overnight, they needed them immediately. Uh, requests were also made for motor vehicles and volunteer drivers to take the ill to the base hospital because they just didn't have enough infrastructure within the base to get people to the hospital quick enough. Additional doctors and nurses were urgent, urgently needed the Red Cross imported several dozen nurses from Ohio. The medical office at Yale Laboratory at New Haven, Connecticut sent 20 medics, but it still wasn't enough. The base commandant requested civilian doctors to lend a hand and urged qualified non-medical personnel willing to aid the nursing staff to volunteer their services. The Courier Journal reported that never before in the state's history had there been such a monumental demand for medical and nursing care in a single locality. The shortage of food deemed suitable for the sick. By the way, if you look at old cookbooks, which I love to do, the older cookbooks, like I'm, I'm talking about ones that are at least 75 years and older, there's always at least two or three pages, sometimes a whole section on how to cook for the ill. Because you, you did that at home prior to everybody going to the hospital or a nursing home. You did all of that at home. So all the old cookbooks have these uh, recipes for making gruel and soups and broths and, and different things. Answering the call for help, Louisville residents sent wagon loads of jelly, fresh garden produce, and soup to the camp. And a group of young people helped prepare food trays for the ill. Students at, at Louisville's Girl High School uh, prepared gallons of chicken broth. A Falls City resident donated bags of lemon uh, for lemonade that she believed would knock the flu. And I love this one. And Simpson County squirrel hunters sent their fruits of their marksmanship to the camp. At first, relatives of the seriously ill were not allowed to visit, uh, except on short-term uh, visits. However, as the infirmary became uh, more and more crowded, it, it was closed to all visitors, except those who received a telegram from the surgeon uh, telling them that an impending demise was about to take place. That was the only way they could visit. The base hostess house was set aside for visiting civilians and messages were taken to and from the visitors in the hospital by gauzed masked couriers. By late October, hospital dismissals began to exceed admissions, but the war in Europe was over before the flu epidemic ended at the hospital base. 
at the base's hospital. Despite the best medical care possible, Camp Taylor's encounter with the Spanish lady was devastating. One-sixth of the camp's men had been hospitalized and 1,500 died. <clears throat> and that was certainly a higher casualty rate than anybody being shot by Kaiser Williams uh, troops. The early cases of Spanish flu in Louisville probably can be traced to Camp Taylor, but the disease also appeared simultaneously in areas across the state. By mid-October, the disease ravaged nearly every town, village, and hamlet across the Commonwealth. Louisville reported 6,400 cases in October. Madisonville officials estimated that 600 residents were ill uh, from the malady, and Davis County reported similar statistics. Breathitt's County's three doctors, in the whole county they had three doctors, tried to care for 2,000 patients. One-fifth of Harlan County's residents became ill, and 90% of the folks in the small Union County settlement of DeCoven were stricken with the flu. The Spanish lady even visited the governor's mansion, temporarily felling the wife and children of Governor A.O. Stanley. The disease descended like the plague on Eastern Kentucky's mining camps. We just don't think about these things, but anywhere there were people congregated together, it was likely to spread very quickly. The appalling death rate was attributed to both disease and starvation and to impassable roads which isolated residents uh, on several mountain settlements. In some uh, coal mining camps, no one was healthy enough to even prepare the food for the people who were sick. So the dead and dying lay side by side. And in one camp, uh, they said that there were several people that would lay there for two or three days before they even had somebody to come in and be able to move them. In many areas of the state, this just floors me, the death rate was as high as 20%. Now that was only for like three counties, but even, even for three counties to reach 20% of a death rate is, is unbelievable. The National Casket Company's reserve stockpile was quickly depleted and many victims were buried in hastily constructed wooden boxes. The preparation of grave sites frequently lagged and churches that ordinarily only averaged several funerals a month were having them daily. As the cases of influenza increased, state and local health officials tried to prevent the treacherous disease from its death grip. And by the way, that's some of you have heard the flu referred to as the grip or la grip, and it's, it ties to that. The State Board of Health urged local newspapers to carry daily instructions on prevention and treatment of the malady. Kentuckians were warned to keep their feet and clothing dry, avoid crowds, protect the nose and the mouth in the presence of a sneezer, because that is really how it spread, gargle three times a day with a mild antiseptic or salt water, attend immediately to early cold or flu-like symptoms, stay in the sunshine whenever possible, and and this is right out of the Courier Journal, don't get scared. <laughs> the Board of Health was also instructed all physicians to follow quarantine procedures when dealing with the Spanish flu, to notify the board then by phone of cases and then to send in a written report. They were also required to quarantine all homes where the disease uh, appeared. The board urged the police to rigidly enforce anti-spitting ordinances. Now, I venture to guess Bowling, Bowling Green and Owensboro probably had these. Now, they weren't strictly enforced, though. I know in Bowling Green, uh, there was one side of our, our square called Spit Row, because that's where the pool halls were, and the men would just sit out and spit their ambeer, you know, out in the, 
and the ladies would never walk on that side of the square. Uh, and that probably happened a lot of places. These uh, ordinances were on the books, but they were hardly ever enforced. Now they're going to have an opportunity to enforce them. They were, the police were also to remind citizens to adhere strictly to all regulations that might be imposed by state and local health boards. The protection of others, the board stressed, was a moral as well as a patriotic duty because each sufferer of the disease deprives the country of his labor and puts a greater drain on its resources because of the extra care, extra care required. Now, most of the restrictions passed by the State Board of Health, which, by the way, in 1918 was in Bowling Green, uh, prevented the gathering of crowds. That was the biggest thing. Don't let people congregate together. The board advised the Louisville Street Railway Company to provide more vehicles on their um, rush hour trains uh, but they couldn't do that because they didn't have enough people to drive the trains. Uh, the board also ordered that all places of amusements, all schools, and all churches throughout the state be closed until further notice. It also urged Kentuckians to remain at home and refrain from traveling, play, paying social calls, entertaining friends, or attending weddings. A Versailles couple partially complied with the suggestion about canceling their church wedding by moving the festivities to the bride's home, where the open porch served as the chancel and the guests were scattered along the spacious lawn. The Board of Health also advised that all public schools should close on October 7th. Now, I say October 7th, it just wasn't for that day. It was for the rest of that year. Now, not all schools completely complied, but most of them did. Most of the state's colleges and universities also canceled classes as well as all school-sponsored social and athletic activities. Now, if the state's young objected to their forced vacation, the press ignored their protest, except for the comment of a young uh, Lexington lad who said, what's the use of a vacation if you can't do nothing? And that's, that was the truth. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't congregate together. Most business and state institutions also ceased operations or made adjustments to their normal schedule. The postmaster at Glasgow locked the post office doors during business hours. The owner of a, I thought, a clever owner of a Shelbyville hotel prevented loitering by removing all the chairs in the lobby. Owensboro's newspaper and numerous other small town papers across the state actually ceased operations for several weeks to protect their employees. And the Louisville Times, which used to post election results outside of their building on a a big bulletin board said that they would not do it that year uh, during the uh, congressional elections. They would put out an extra the next day with all the election results. They just didn't want people being together. Although federal courts remained in session, most of Kentucky state courts closed during October. And I, you know, I didn't look very hard. I just went to our card catalog and I said, I bet there's something in our card catalog about this. And I pulled out a letter. This is from Cumberland County. And it's dated November 26, and it says, in response to yours of a recent date, I'm compelled to say that we did not have any court and will not have any until March. So they closed in October, and they weren't going to open back up until March. And, and uh, there will be no orders made in any cases, and everything will go over until March term, and you at that time can draw your $100 on this case that he was talking about. And then he says it's all due to the flu. And then at the very end he says, the flu is on again here pretty badly, and everything is very quiet. So it tied in beautifully with this closing of the courts. Uh, the Board of Health also advised that all, well, I'm sorry, I mentioned that already, didn't I? 
the criminal divisions of most, most county courts continue to meet, but only those persons whose court appearances were mandatory, those were the only ones who were required to attend. The closing of theaters, coal mines, and business establishments undoubtedly placed many persons in financial difficulties related to their salaries because generally you were not paid for layoffs. The Louisville Retail Merchants Association reported that sales fell dramatically in October and the state's coal and petroleum production was reduced by 50%. And you've got to keep in mind, this is 1918. We had a big oil boom in Kentucky, especially in eastern Kentucky uh, in 1918. School teachers, you love this, school teachers may have been the only ones who received their usual salaries during the forced vacation. The closing of the state's churches caused a bit of an uproar. In lieu of public worship, ministers urged their parishioners to hold private services, and newspapers carried suggested Bible readings and brief sermons written by clergy of various faiths. Although most clergymen comp com comprehended the dangers incurred in these crowded Sunday settings, uh, they still had some caustic uh, remarks that were made because of the Board of Health uh, requiring their churches to close, even for private meditation. So, I mean, literally, the church buildings were closed. No one was to come in them. Yet, and this is what the ministers brought up, yet saloons were permitted to remain open. <laughs> On October 18th, the board rescinded its earlier directive and gave permission for churches to remain open for private worship, which meant that people could come in individually, but they were not going to have corporate worship services. And that they ordered that saloons close at 6 p.m. each evening. That was the one concession. As the epidemic began to subside, many ministers requested that their churches be permitted to hold regular services, insisting that none of, or very few, of their communicants had been stricken by the disease. One member of the Board of Health commented that according to these persistent clergymen, apparently only irreligious folks were victimized by the flu. The epidemic also curtailed seasonal and war-related activities. In mid-October, the state draft board announced that physical examinations for all recruits were being discontinued until further notice because more training camps throughout the country were too busy fighting the flu to be able to welcome new uh, members or new arrivals. Although the disease apparently did not worry Halloweeners uh, in many areas, Harrison County actually prohibited all Halloween activities by the county health officer and they instructed, them to, uh, they instructed the police to arrest everyone that was participating in Halloween activities. Louisville canceled its Columbus Day Parade and its big Italian relief ball. That was a really big thing in Louisville for a while. The epidemic even stifled the oratory of Kentucky's politicians. <laughs> Is that possible? Democrat and Republican headquarters canceled all public speeches and rallies during the month of the gubernatorial and congressional campaign. An unidentified poet wrote of the cancellations, I'm just a little germ that, keep, that gets in people's noses, but I have all the politicians shaking on their toeses. For until I leave the platform free and not a second sooner, the public can't hear Stanley speak, who was governor, or his opponent, or listen to Ben Barner, who was his opponent. Because of war needs, Kentucky suffered from an acute shortage of nurses and physicians to care for this multitude of flu victims. 
more than half of the Commonwealth's doctors were in the military, leaving only about 1,500 doctors, licensed doctors, in the state of Kentucky, which would be servicing 2.5 million civilians. The State Board of Health sent 96 doctors and 235 nurses and the Sisters of Charity who volunteered to the most severely stricken areas and urged other medical personnel to volunteer when the disease subsided in their own locality. The U.S. Public Health Service, emoting that people had come to rely too much on physicians and graduate nurses, suggested that everyone learn how to take care of themselves and the people in their home. Thus, most of the nursing care during the epidemic was provided by family or neighbors. Physicians worked day and night to take care of the sick patients. Making house calls, believe it or not, 1918 was still a very common occurrence. And during the epidemic, busy practitioners occasionally provided services beyond their professional training. For example, uh, one of Bowling Green's black doctors spent many hours trying to find volunteers to care for the sick and bury the dead of isolated um, uh, families. A Cynthiana physician claimed that he practiced his culinary skills for several of his uh, flu patients and on more than one occasion milked the family cow before leaving. Transportation difficulties also decreased the number of patients that a busy practitioner could see. Few practitioners in small towns and rural areas owned automobiles, as you can imagine. And, you know, we have pretty good roads today. But I just want you to think about some of the rural roads in Kentucky uh, in 1918. It would have been very, very difficult for any kind of automobile to get up. So a horse or a mule was frequently the only means to get to a farm. A Warren County doctor later estimated that he had worn out a pair of horseshoes every week while visiting his rural patients during the epidemic. Where facilities were available, the most severe cases with influenza were hospitalized. An entire floor of Louisville's Deaconess Hospital was devoted to flu sufferers, and many hospitals in the Fall City actually had contagion wards where they could quarantine people off. Many communities were forced to create temporary facilities Breathitt County's trachoma, you know, which is a blindness uh, disease, uh, was open to flu patients. And three temporary flu hospitals were set up in Harlan County. The YMCA building in Paris was converted into a facility. And high schools in Owensboro, Shelbyville, and Winchester housed the ill, and similar use was made of the Elks Lodge in Ashland. Many folks were reluctant to even go to a hospital, but one county health officer suggested that in the case of stubborn patients, the best method was to firmly grasp the re rebellious fellow, place him on a stretcher, and forcibly take him to the nearest facility. Throughout the epidemic, advice on flu prevention circulated around the state. The Board of Health recommended that those attending the ill wear masks, uh, which were made from at least five layers of gauze, or what most people use, cheesecloth cover their clothing with a smock when in the sick room, and wash their hands thoroughly once they were outside of the room. Whenever possible, the patient and his attendant should be isolated or quarantined from other family members. A Louisville chemical company suggested that all homes be disinfected and fumigated with its special preparation to prevent the accumulation of deadly flu germs. I love this, many millinery shops or hat shops uh, advertise hats made of gauze with flu veils, and drug and dry goods stores enjoyed an increase in the sale of gauze and cheesecloth. 
A store owner in Mays Lick, which is over Mason County, even suggested to his customers that smoking a malodorous pipe, like the one on which he had puffed for years, would keep away all germs. Just a smelly pipe. But one of the most popular preventatives, and perhaps the one used by more folks than any other, was asphetidin. A young flu patient from Mason County included a small amount of it in each letter sent to his sweetheart to kill any germs that he might be sending to her. <laughs> but the most common use of this ill-smelling gum, which is actually, uh, it's a, like a, a latex extrusion that comes off of a root, off of a plant that they grow over in India and Iran, uh, and it, it was put in a little bag and it, it was actually worn around the neck and it was thought that it would help. There's no medical, there's no good medical reason for having worn that. But if you think about it, if it smelled really bad, then maybe it would keep people away. And so medically, maybe it did have some benefit. Uh, but even that, and I'll tell you, asphetidid is sometimes its nickname is the devil's dung. So that ought to tell you maybe what it smells like. It was not pleasant. But some people wanted to even increase maybe the power of it, and they would add an onion into their little bag. Vaccines were quite new and popular during the early days of the century, and several immunizing agents had been developed that mistakenly claimed to prevent flu and its deadly complications. And the U.S. Congress even appropriated a million dollars so that all of the troops could be vaccinated. The Surgeon General made arrangements for all military personnel and all government employees to be vaccinated. And a serum developed by Dr. William Mayo of the Mayo Clinics of Rochester, Minnesota, was administered throughout the Commonwealth. And I, I have another letter where they're sending out uh, something to the State Board of Health. It's sending out to all the doctors uh, information about how to give this and where they purchase it and uh, how, they, how many discounts that they would get for purchasing the serum. It's really quite interesting. And it's, it's named the, the Mayo Serum. Unfortunately, none of these measures were effective. Patent medicines advertised as wondrous preventatives of flu and every other malady that a person could have also claimed great preventative and therapeutic powers, but they really possessed none. Medical technology could not control the Spanish femme fatale. Treatment for the flu generally consisted of, that's the same thing we do, what do we do today? Rest, go to bed. Lots of fluids and aspirin, quite honestly. Liquor was sometimes prescribed as a relaxant painkiller or tonic to keep up the strength, of course. A Pikeville doctor distributed whiskey as a, a flu medicine. And a Bowling Green doctor who believed that alcohol maybe didn't cure the flu but made his patients more comfortable administered his wife's entire stock of Christmas pudding brandy that year. In many rural areas, a homemade expectorant concocted from honey and the syrup extracted from the bark of cherry trees was hailed as effective in controlling the disease's hacking cough, but nothing really cured the flu. In late October, the disease began to abate in Kentucky, and on November 7th, the State Board of Health announced that schools and churches could open in those counties where the disease had nearly disappeared. The opening of amusement centers was left to the direction of local health officials. Church attendance was better than usual on November 10th that year when people claimed that their minister delivered the best sermon that he had ever given. Local school boards formulated plans to make up the time lost uh, 
during the epidemic. Louisville schools established a six-day academic week, and Lexington schools added an hour to their daily schedule for seven weeks. In Davis County, the disease lingered longer, however, and I, I went through uh, all the death certificates for October and November in Davis County. So in uh, October, there were 67 deaths in Davis County, and in November, there were 49. By December, it drops down into the teens. Now, this is how I can tell you that we were just not affected very greatly by that first round. If you go to February and March, in Davis County, there are only two cases of influenza, and that probably would be rather typical in any given year. But then you see this huge spike in October and November. Also, another thing about this flu is it affected chiefly uh, people between the ages of 1 and 22. Now, when I look at Owensboro's cases, though, that's not the case. It affected the typical people groups that are affected by the flu, the very young and the very old. So if I averaged out the ages here, I think it would be quite a bit higher than the national average. And something else that really surprised me is the African-Americans that are listed as having, um, uh, are dying from the flu, almost all of them are really older people. Uh, I saw very few children in the African-American community dying here from the flu, which, which I found amazing because there are plenty of other children that died. And I, would, I, could just go, I can look down my, this is uh, 48, cases here and I'm seeing at least seven or eight minus ones, which means they were at least under one year of age. So lots of babies uh, died from the flu that year. Um, local doctors, as I said, reported 49 deaths here in October and 67 in November. Can you imagine, um, I just want you to think about Owensboro in 1918, you have 67 people die in one month from that cause. Now they're people, they died from other things and I, do y'all, Y'all don't do this, but I think it's the coolest thing <laughs> to look at death certificates and how people died. I just, I just wrote down a few of them. Complications from a fall. Malnutrition. That really surprised me. Uh, whooping cough. Tuberculosis. Bronchial pneumonia. Periandidus. Uh, spinal meningitis. Cerebral hemorrhaging. Senility. Uh, stillbirth. And then the one most curious one of all, unknown. That one's kind of disturbing. Uh, although many of the bans uh, on these congregating together were lifted, crowd gathering sales were prohibited, and merchants were encouraged to eliminate Santa Claus and Christmas tree lighting festivities. How un-American. <coughs> Despite all warnings, however, crowds did gather, and news of Germany's surrender, which of course is in November, uh, signaled large public demonstrations of joy. I don't know what happened here, but I know in Bowling Green they lit bonfires on each of the four corners of the square, and they partied all night long. The bells on the churches did not stop that whole night. Um, as Kentuckians abandoned their earlier caution, the number of flu cases, of course, then began to go up slightly. Fortunately, the number of new cases never equaled that October crest. Nevertheless, to protect the state's juveniles, public schools were ordered to close again, and many of them in remote rural areas remained closed until the following September, so they just closed for the rest of the year. Children under 16 were barred from theaters, amusement centers, business establishments, and other places where people congregated. The Mayo Serum was distributed and everyone was urged to help overcome the situation that threatened the very life of our nation. Well, Spanish influenza cases continued to be reported throughout the winter of 1919. 
But except for a few scattered localities, the disease ceased to be an epidemic. The State Board of Health repeatedly admonished the public to be aware of crowds, but the state's press carried few comments about it after the war ended. Public interest focused on the returning American doughboys, peace and rehabilitation in Europe, prohibition, and the Bolshevik threat in the United States. These became the favorite topics of newspapers. Throughout the epidemic, the State Board of Health kept records of cases and deaths, and the numbers were appalling. 13,642 of Kentucky's 2.5 million residents died of influenza. 115 of these were from Owensboro, and 190 from Davis County. So you combine that, that's 300 and, well, almost 400 cases altogether here in this, of deaths, not cases. You can just imagine, it, you extrapolate that out by the average of how many people had it versus how many died, and you'd have well over half of your population uh, was suffering at one time or another from influenza. Six times as many Kentuckians died of the Spanish flu as gave their lives in World War I. In addition, the disease halted war production, almost brought military training to a standstill, temporarily curtailed the education of the state's youth, and caused untold hardships because of financial losses. And what happened in Kentucky happened in every other state, only worse, because we were a very rural state. So we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of big cities here where people would be right on top of each other. In 1918, disease was man's greatest enemy, not the Kaiser. And I'll be glad to try to answer any questions or some people have some, I know we had some people who have experienced, you know, family members who had the flu during this time. Yes, sir. If penicillin had been invented by that time, would that have uh, cut the flu off or would it have any effect? I think it might have had a little bit of an effect, but it, penicillin is um, not what you would typically use for, for treating the flu. Um, what, what has happened in recent years is more and more people have flu vaccines. This, this is why I believe we've not had the flu epidemics today, because these strains are still around. I mean, uh, this is why I mentioned to somebody earlier on, you know, we killed a couple of thousand chickens over in Hopkinsville not too long ago because they had the avian flu. And see, they can transmutate from an animal to a person. They just need a living host. This is why we get our flu vaccine out of eggs. You know, they make them out of eggs because they've got to be in cells. But um, somebody who's a nurse or something might could address a penicillin issue better than me. But I don't, honestly, I don't think it would have made that big a difference. It might have helped some Right. And what typically happens after you had the flu, you got pneumonia. That's right. uh, so maybe penicillin might have helped in that if, way. If, if it was, if that secondary infection was right. material in any way, it may have helped. But yeah. Okay, the A strain, both of the strains in 1918 were A strains, the worst. Both in the spring and fall. Mm -hmm. It's just that it was more virulent. These, these, uh, uh, these viruses can mutate and they can, it seems like they have a, a mind and a will of their own. They can do whatever they want to. But they can go from, and that's why when it came back, it was more virulent than when it went over. Both being A strains. 
Yes, they were both A-strains, though. Yeah. Right. C-strain, you wouldn't even know it, to be honest. You might get a little sick, but you probably wouldn't even notice it. And B is not, is not life-threatening or anything like that. But A is... Well, B can be life-threatening if you have other complications. And if you look at the death certificates, and I counted everyone who listed influenza as either the primary cause or the secondary cause. So, and you have to, I mean, um, you don't know exactly when one occurs and, and another. And a lot of the, the, the deaths that were reported, even in Davis County, for pneumonia probably had some contribu con contributions from influenza, but the doctor just didn't note it. Uh, some of the doctors, as I said, were still using consumption as uh, the word, and then some la grippe, <laughs> which was a old, more old-fashioned term for the flu. But uh, the penicillin, that is a really good question, and I, like she said, I don't think it would have helped any in that particular case. The serums that were developed, uh, I won't say they were quackery, but they were, they, they were, there was no proof that they would help anyone. And quite honestly, they may have helped people only in giving them hope or thinking that they were okay and maybe, but um, more like a panacea than anything else. Yes, and that's because of the pathology. Uh, some of the frozen remains, uh, they were they were actually able to. So yes, but I'm not a scientist, so I can't, you know, explain all of that, or a medical doctor can explain all that. But yes, there has been pathological evidence to, and that's how they isolate it so well to Kansas and say this is where we we actually believe it came from. Although they can't, it they can't say it's a fact, but they believe from the evidence that that's where it came from. That's a great question, well, too. Uh, yes, and this, this is why they thought, um, many times in the flu, the younger people are not the ones that are affected. And I mean young people like uh, uh, 12, you know, on up to 20. This particular uh, strain of the flu did affect, on an average, those people in particular uh, like I said, in Davis County, you can't prove that from the evidence. But uh, overall, and I'll tell you why I think that's the case, because I want you to think about all the congregated people together in a war. You've got all of these young men together, and so it, it affected them. It was devastating to the Army, quite frankly, and to uh, military installations. So it, it makes some sense that there might be more people affected at that age because there was a war going on. And it also makes sense that the spread of the flu might not have been anywhere near as bad as it was if we had not been in a war where we're sending troops from one part of the world to another and then bringing them back. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. This isn't a question, but um, uh, Bill Tyler, if you know Dr. Tyler here in Owensboro, his father and grandfather were both physicians. And his uh, uh, grandfather kept up. He was a doctor in Kurtzville, but he, he traveled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the people were the people were sick. Uh, they everybody's had the flu in here, haven't they? I mean it'll it'll lay you low for a couple of days, that's for sure. Uh, but really, um, as long as you got bed rest and plenty of fluid, and uh, generally you could make it out of the flu. Uh, but if you've got everybody in your household that's sick, you've got no one to help take care of the people within the household then you're going to have problems.
and that did happen. I mean, uh, we, have those, we have those wonderful interviews that the paper did here back in the uh, early 90s with people who were in their 80s and 90s, and several of those people reported about entire families being in the house and being in isolated areas where there was no one really to come and help them. And, and inevitably, family members died in those families. It wouldn't be a surprise. Another doctor here in town, I remember talking to his grandson, saying that during the epidemic, he took uh, amphetamine, something to keep him awake and keep going, and it ruined his life. Wow. Never really recovered. Oh, that's sad. Well, I mean, it's tragic. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.